Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушает. В России сегодня вступают в силу поправки в Конституцию. Привет, это Навальный. Дело Я уже о сотруднике безопасности. С Новым годом вас. С Новым веком. Russia's recent troop buildup near the Ukrainian border has gotten everybody's attention. It's raised fears of a possible fresh Russian offensive in eastern Ukraine, and it caused the U.S.-European command to raise its alert status to its highest level. But the Russian buildup near Ukraine is not happening in isolation. As listeners of this podcast no doubt know, it comes amidst a qualitative change in Russia's force posture on its western frontier, most notably in Kaliningrad, and beyond its western frontier in Belarus. This represents a potential threat not just to Ukraine, but to NATO members Lithuania and Poland as well. So what is Vladimir Putin's regime up to? Stick around to find out. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me again from an undisclosed location in the great Commonwealth of Virginia, where he's hiding out with his two dogs, Ivan the Kogi and Finn the Kali is military analyst Michael Kaufman, a senior research scientist at the Russia Studies Program at the CNA Corporation and a fellow at the Kennan Institute. Welcome back to The Vertical, Michael. It's good to see you again. We just did this a couple of weeks ago and it's time to do it again. And a, a big hello to Yvonne and Finn as well. Uh, thanks. Great to see you again. Surprised yeah. to be back so soon, but I guess there's uh, plenty to talk about in the middle. Yeah, no, I, I, I was actually thinking about it and I was like, oh, we just did this. We got to do it again. So like, like, you know, if it seems like we just had this conversation, it's because we have. Uh, two weeks ago, when the Russian military buildup in Kaliningrad and Belarus was only on the main minds of geeks like us, we were here. Now, well, now we got a couple more data points. The Russian buildup near the Ukrainian border seems to have gotten everybody's attention. It's all anybody's talking about. I don't know about you, but I'm getting media requests for it like on it like crazy. And as I wrote in my column for the Atlantic Council this week, um, in conjunction with the Russian buildup, Belarus is also moving a tank battalion to its western border near Poland, which is disturbing to say the least. Are all these, Michael, do you see all these data points connected? Um, and whether or not they are, what's Putin up to and how worried should we be? The eternal question. Right, it's a great question. So we're probably witnessing several different activities, some of which are connected as there's a thesis behind them. And let's try to unpack that in the conversation. I think I think before we turn to Ukraine, let's talk a bit more about what's happening with general Russian military activity and maybe some of the things that are taking place in Belarus. So first, we know that Zappa 2021 is coming, that that is going to be a pretty pretty major strategic command staff exercise. There'll be a snap readiness check in August, and the actual thing is going to take off in September. But there, there are several phases before the exercise takes place. So during this year, we are going to see a large number of Russian drills, snap readiness checks, and we're going to see Belarusians participate in that. In fact, you often see some test deployments of Russian forces to Belarus. Mm -hmm. And so you have a wave of activity right now taking place in Russia and the Russian military that's recently been launched. There's preparatory ahead of both Zappa 2021 and also as part of these sort of annual certification mm -hmm. readiness checks so on and so forth. Now what's happening in Belarus is pretty interesting. Last time we, we discussed this topic, uh, I was raising the point that first you have a de facto permanent Russian military presence in Belarus now on rotation. As they're mm -hmm. rotating forces through Belarus on a temporary basis to generate a permanent military presence, right? This is issue one. Second, that they do have forces that will be going in uh, into Western Belarus, right? We know we know that for a fact as well. The joint training, the joint training. That's center. right. That's right. The joint training. So yeah, but we don't know what the joint training center is. Um, you know, like, meaning. We know that that's a thing. We don't know is that uh, is that just an air defense battalion? Is there is there going to be aircraft? What's that going to consist of? That's a potentially scalable military presence, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we know that's going to happen. We do not know for a fact yet what kind of presence that will engender. And we have a lot of Belarusian drills as well, right? As you said, we have a tank battalion moving to the Polish border. Now, obviously, we're not crazy. We know that Belarus is not going to launch Operation YOLO to invade Poland. We get that. But, <laughs> but, right, but, right. But, right, right, right. We get that. 
But these are like these are interesting demonstrations and drills that, to me, to some extent, may presage the kind of activities we are going to see during Zappa 2021. They're both deterrence activities on the part of the Lukashenko regime mm -hmm. and on the part of Moscow, and they're also preparatory activities, meaning rehearsals. We're looking at rehearsals potentially of the sort of activities we will see in September, but mm -hmm. potentially on a larger scale, and that's point of track. So we have this flurry of military activity taking place both across Belarus and across Russia. Mm -hmm. And then we have something else. We've actually something else that's been happening, probably feared to put it since about February, and only began cropping up on radar in March, right? Which is uh, the collapse of the ceasefire in Ukraine, mm -hmm. the buildup and movement of Russian military forces in substantial numbers, both to Crimea and to other parts around Ukraine, some movement of Ukrainian military forces in March as well towards the line of control uh, in Donbass, and the real escalation in rhetoric and signaling, especially from the Russian side, from Moscow side, which is actually almost a little bit unusual. In fact, you haven't seen something like this since about 2018, but the yeah. cause was very different back then. So what do you see behind this? Like, what does Russia gain by escalating in Ukraine, first of all, if we, if we can unpack that piece? Yeah, this is a great question. So, okay. We have a bit of a context. First, we have a very changed policy in Ukraine in probably the last six, seven months, both towards Russia in taking a much harsher stance, towards principal Russian influence in Ukraine, as you know, Medvedchuk, and, and the media channels that, that behind which he stood, and also towards negotiation over Minsk ceasefire agreement implementation, which has reached an impasse. There's an interesting piece to that, too. Ukraine, as I understand it, doesn't want to hold this in Minsk anymore because they don't trust the Belarusians anymore to be an honest broker. Did, did you did you pick up on that? Yeah, it seems that way. And I, I don't blame them. Belarus is done playing the two-level game. That game right. actually sailed for them last year, right? They're right, done, right. They're done trying to capitalize. If you saw one party trying to, almost in a predatory way, try to capitalize off of the Russian war with Ukraine, it was Belarus, an attempt to launder kind of the regime's position in Europe. Right. And that game for them was gone. <laughs> right. So you see the Russian buildup as a response to the steps Ukraine has been taking against kind of Russian proxies in Ukraine, like Medvedchuk, or? No, not necessarily. I'm just painting a bit of a background. For right. It. So on the Russian side, what we've had is, uh, as the impasse has been reached, okay, there's, there's no clear path forward for Russia to attain right now its political objectives vis-a-vis the kind of desired end states they're looking for with the Donbass. So Donbass is heading towards the fact of Russian annexation over time, right? right? I think that's a fair depiction, okay? This is not a tenable position for Moscow, right? Because, you know, like the principal like, point of Russian foreign policy was not to formally annex the Donbass. Like, right. We know no, that like, much of it and no. not, to take, not to take ownership of it. Would you say that's fair? No, I'd say that's absolutely fair. I don't. I don't. I thought Russia never wanted. They wanted to stick it back into Ukraine like a Trojan horse under Moscow's control, but they didn't want to formally annex it. Absolutely, absolutely. So that's where the situation is currently going. All right. So now we get to the question of first. There's this all this Russian jerk chattering that they think like Zelensky's maybe like Saakashvili, and that for because of domestic political reasons right. he'll launch an offensive. To me, a lot of this talk was pretty silly because. Look, Ukraine is not Georgia, one. Two, Russia completely surrounds Ukraine in terms of military permanent bases, deployments, and the like. It's a tremendous amount of military right. power. Third, there's really no evidence beyond some heightened rhetoric on, on the Ukrainian side. There really is not a tremendous amount of evidence that Ukraine has the intention, the capacity, the inclination to attempt a large-scale military operation to retake the Donbass against a militarily superior power. They're just not been – they're just not yeah. – no, it, it, that doesn't make any sense at all. No. So what if I'm hearing you correctly, Michael, it seems like you're saying that Russia is trying to kind of create a pretext to kind of change the dynamic. Would that be accurate? Yeah. And what's happening is Russia's not deploying to the Donbass. So this is a really interesting situation. So they're claiming Ukrainians are moving military forces in March, and they did move some units. And then you expect to see that if the Russian story, if the narrative was fair and accurate, and they were really concerned, you know, and they had to deter this dreadfully powerful military right. uh, state of Ukraine, you know, <laughs> this kind of narrative that Russia's put out, that they would be moving some forces into the Donbass as well, right? But that's not what's going on. Instead, you see a fairly sizable deployment of Russian military power that's trickling in steadily. And it's a picture that's a moving target. That is, units are arriving from all over Russia to Crimea and to other parts of the outskirts of Ukraine. Question, what does Crimea have to do with Donbass? It's like we're right. over 300 kilometers away. What's there? 
was the relationship of these two. And part of the Russian story, frankly, isn't true because Russian airborne units were exercising in the Donbass in February before Russians began talking about the prospect of escalation and before any Ukrainian units moved anywhere, right, in March. The sequencing is not right and it's not fair. And it's right. not clear that they ever would draw the airborne units that they deployed to, to the Crimean Peninsula early in February. Instead, they kept adding to them and adding, and they're still adding to them, mm -hmm. right? So the, so the conversation in terms of sequencing, right, Brian, it's not, the Russian position is not really honest here about who did what first and who's responding to what. This is issue one for me. The, the Russians are being honest about it. They'll knock me over with a fan. I know. You know? <laughs> I know, I know. But, I know. But, but, Brian, but I follow the evidence, right? The narrative right, I'm, gotcha, I'm, gotcha. I'm a person who follows the evidence, right? I, like, okay. <laughs> I get that. But I like confirming, disconfirming right, evidence. Right. That's what makes sense to my mind of who did what first and what could we right. see. So, so the evidence shows, first of all, the Russians began deploying to Crimea for exercises and not necessarily withdrawing those forces in February before anything happened with Ukraine in March right. and before the ceasefire broke down. That's a fair, that's a fair deficient of mm -hmm. Second, so the ceasefire broke down, okay, and, and it may escalate, it may lead to some artillery duels, some skirmishes, we don't know yet in the coming days. I think the next coming uh, week or two will be very telling. What alarms UCOM, what alarms I think uh, a lot of us watching the situation, what drew this concern is, the Russian military deployments are clearly not regular exercises. Second, they are not part of the preparations or the checks ahead of Zappa 2021. Mm -hmm. This is not part of that activity I described earlier. Right. Third, they are not regular troop rotations to the area or to the Russian units that are currently deployed in Donbass either. And then the justifications that, or I'd say not justifications, the press releases that like Southern Military District put out on March 31st, saying that they were doing some exercise in Southern Military District, essentially in an effort to explain some of this activity. These are post hoc justifications that are completely unconvincing to anyone that's been watching the scene develop. And they don't encompass any of the activity because the question is, okay, well, why are central military district units? Other military district units are all loaded up on rail wagons and headed for the Crimea or unloading in Voronezh. What's happening? They're not part of Southern military district and their readiness checks have nothing to do with this movement. So, does this suggest our, you know, some people's worst fears are well-founded right now, or is this posturing? All right, so here's kind of challenge I have. My, the, way, the way I initially interpreted this looking at this last week is that this is coercive diplomacy. This is a very heavy coercive demonstration of military power intended to intimidate Ukraine, right? And the Russians will say this for deterrence. And to be perfectly frank, a lot of people who are engaged in coercive displays of force will always make it sound defensive and claim that they're trying to deter. The argument the Russians are trying to deter Ukraine from conducting a major offensive against the Donbass, to me, just doesn't scan and doesn't sound very truthful because you're just not seeing that kind of activity. And the political messaging from Ukraine is very much about restraint. You saw Zelensky first speak to restraint and then fly off to Qatar, all right? He doesn't, right. just doesn't, the, the scene doesn't look like a person who's in the midst of planning military operations right. for the country's biggest gambit, you know, uh, so it's just, it's hard to read that, Brian, and say that this makes sense. So it looked like coercion intimidation, but over the last several days, you saw a growth in terms of both the uh, size of formations that they're sending and deploying around Ukraine and to the Crimea. You saw some other units and logistical units showing up as well which leads someone like me to begin to hedge and worry about my confidence levels and say, okay, what's the over under that there is a, a more sinister objective in mind or that perhaps the situation is one where they are spoiling for a provocation, right? Mm -hmm. That is, um, and, and this, of course, this would be true to form, to create the conditions to potentially force the other side to miscalculate, to create a provocation if you're looking for an excuse to use military power, right? You're right. looking to generate a cause's belly because you have these intentions. Well, along those lines, Michael, is there evidence that the ceasefire broke down? Um, it broke down because somebody caused it to break down. Is there any evidence who that was? I have a suspicion, but you're, you, let's hear your, you, you watch this a lot closer than I do. I do. So, so the frank answer is a lot of times when these things happen, we don't know for a fact. That's hard because the ceasefires usually break down first in small ways and then in big ways and both sides blame each other. The Russian argument that it was very lucrative for Ukraine to break the ceasefire for domestic political purposes, 
to me doesn't doesn't really uh, necessarily scan, and I'm not I'm not really a strong and, subscriber to it. And it would be definitely be in Putin's interest for domestic political purposes as well. If you think of where he is domestically right now. Well, I think just in general interaction with Ukraine, it would make sense for Russia as yep. well, too, because, OK, it's a stalemate. Europeans are de facto backing the Ukrainian position on Minsk and not wanting basically not not pushing hard to break any impasse over the negotiations on Minsk. So the situation over time is not a very tenable one for Russia. So you can actually come up with a fairly reasonable motive for why to raise this now towards a crisis situation but also to use this as a way of signaling specifically to Europeans who are in the Normandy negotiation to look, that, that the conflict is not frozen, it's not settled, right? Because the reason you want to break the ceasefire is to create a problem to solve, right? Right. That's why you do it. You want to create a problem to solve, you want to see movement on the other side. Right. And the most benevolent interpretation of this is that Russia doesn't like the way the political dynamic is going in Ukraine, so they're basically intimidating Ukraine to to rattle it and change the political dynamics. That's the benevolent interpretation. The more malevolent interpretation is that Russia is indeed preparing, trying trying to create a provocation and create a pretext to launch kinetic military attack on Ukraine. Would that be, these are the two things that you don't, it's like a coin flip at this point, basically. Uh, I give you actually a third one. There's a worse one. So, okay. <laughs> so there's, there's a benevolent interpretation. There's a sinister interpretation, and there's a very kind of high and to the right malevolent interpretation that I think is is very unlikely. But we should still raise it just for the sake of discussion because people are thinking in this way, which is that Russia actually is building up forces and intends to conduct some kind of offensive operations mm-hmm. and. Now, folks often in their mind quickly conflate when somebody says offensive operation. They say, why would Russia conduct offensive operations? Doesn't make sense for them to capture more territory or this, that, and other. And the answer is, well, why do you believe that offensive operations are about territorial conquest? That's not necessarily the case. Okay, like that's just not. The two are not associated. So, what would the, what would the other objective be? Well, actually, both times, realistically, when Russia conducted offensive operations, specifically in the conflict that is in sizable uh, deployments against Ukraine, August and, and uh, 2014, and if you remember, February, yeah. January, February, March of 2015, 15, they deployed yeah. substantial forces, they had a fight, they had some fairly decisive fights, then they withdrew most of the military power that they introduced, right? And so the goal would be coercively use power, inflict substantial damage, casualties, whatnot, for some new uh, political reconciliation, then withdraw, right? Because clearly Russia's not interested in any more parts of the Donbass. But none of the offensive operations were to capture more parts of the Donbass per se, right? That wasn't right. why Russia introduced forces. It was to force the Minsk ceasefire agreement in the first place, the first one, the second. The other more sinister one, as you know, comes up, and we should raise it for discussion, because people are worried every year that the water crisis in Crimea is going to lead Russia to cross, right. you know, Perikop Isthmus, uh, capture Kherson Oblast to try to get to the Dnepr River and basically capture that water canal. I think this is pretty unlikely. I've always been um, pretty dismissive of it. But previous years when I've been dismissive of it, there were two good, two big reasons, Brian. First, and we've had this discussion before, but, yeah. but you know, during those years. But first, the reason why was those war scares were principally raised on the Ukrainian side first, not on the Russian one. That is the threat of escalation, the political rhetoric. The, the MLA originally from the Ukrainian side. And second, there was no evidence of any kind of troop movement to substantiate them so we could safely dismiss them because there were no Russian forces flowing into Crimea for any reasonable person to say, yeah, I think this might be happening, right? Right. Okay, right. well, this year is a little different. First, the claims that there could be an escalation, that escalation would quote unquote lead to the destruction of Ukraine's state that's coming out of major Russian interlocutors like Kozak, basically threatening right. fairly large scale war. That's what they're saying consistently the past right. week and a half. Even though you have some attempts at assuring statements by uh, Nikolai Patrushev, which is often assure me less. Like, I don't know when I read Patrushev if I'm more or less assured. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. I don't know whether, I don't know if when Patrushev says but, that. But, but Patrushev is very close to Putin and is, in his, he's, the, he's the person to listen to to, to sure. get what Putin's real thinking is. Sure, sure. And Patrushev basically says that Russia has, you know, none of these uh, malevolent intentions towards Ukraine. Yada, yada. But right. okay, <laughs> I, I get that. But, you know, but if I probably find Patrushev statements in 2014, 2015, I'm not going to find great indicators of a plan for offensive operations either, Brian. Right. I don't right, think, right. Like, I, don't, I don't think he was ever out front in that saying that it was going to happen. So the, the reason I kind of raise this is that 
Uh, this year, we do see vocal statements coming from the Russian side. First and most importantly, we see a substantial buildup of forces. That buildup, I would say, is not large enough necessarily yet to be the kind that I would expect to substantiate a major offensive operation. But forces keep flowing into Crimea, right? right. So the situation is changing on a day-to-day basis. So Shoigu, Shoigu just announced last week, if I'm not mistaken, that the 56th Air Assault Brigade, which is a paratrooper unit based in Pskov, was was being redeployed to Crimea, to, yeah. to Theodosia. Yeah. Now that I don't know if that, that got my attention. Did it get your? I sure got yours. Well, they they had several airborne units that were raided. They're shipping a part of the 76 from Skov all the way across from Estonia down to Crimea right now. The 56 has gone in. Actually, the 56 is going to convert to a permanently based regiment that's going to stay in Crimea from now on. But that's most likely later on this year. People have tried to dismiss that news by saying, well, the Russians announced that the 56 Brigade is going to turn into a regiment and be based in Crimea moving forward. The answer is yeah, but Shoigu didn't announce that, and then it's going to happen the next day. These units are there not to do that. They are there as part of this military deployment. 58th Army is there. 136th Brigade with T-90 tanks from Mahashkala is on the way there. Okay, Mahashkala is on the Caspian Sea. For those right. of you folks who don't know, this is like North Caucasus, Caspian Sea. 136, by the way, only T-90A unit to really deploy ever in, in Ukraine back in 2014 in September outside Lugansk. All right, 136 was there too, back back in those days. But so you have uh, 74th Brigade from Yurga in Central Military District. You need to get a map and watch mark 7,000 kilometers east to find it. Mm-hmm. It's deploying with what looks like a battalion tactical group. And you have a number of other units, basically, that are heading to this area. So you have to ask yourself, okay, this is a large mobility exercise drill? No, it's not. Is it a large course of deployment to intimidate Ukraine? Most likely. Is it something else? There's an over-under where it could actually be something else. That's a low probability but high-impact event, and any else worth their salt has to consider it. Right, so you, so, so we got basically two different things going on in Ukraine potentially right now. We have the the attempt to change the political dynamic in the Donbass, um, to unfreeze the conflict, if you will, to create a new dynamic in terms of what Russia can get out of a ceasefire and what it's always wanted was the Trojan horse option of forcing Donbass back in. As you say, and I, I, I tend to agree with this, it was moving in a direction of de facto annexation, which the Ukrainians will never say out loud, but I think they could live with, um, right? Um, and which certainly doesn't suit the Russians. So you got that piece. Then you got the piece down in Crimea, which could be related to the, the perennial water crisis and, and a Russian attempt to, to seize territory up to the Dnieper River there um, to, to resolve that crisis. So we got two different things going on in Ukraine, unrelated is my, is my understanding, yeah? Now, when you put this all together with the other pieces we've been discussing, Kaliningrad, Belarus, do you see connections or are these two completely separate and distinct sets of activity? So two things. First, the way I see the activity in Ukraine, I actually do see from almost uh, that Bryansk area to further northeast of Ukraine, to east of Ukraine, to Crimea, as as actually generally set of connected activities. That is what I see, the deployment outside of Voronezh, the mobilization of the 150th Division drilling around Rostov, right across from Mm. the Donbass. That's the main division and the 8th Army that's responsible for backstopping Mm. uh, the the Russian-led forces in the Donbass, to the substantial deployment of Crimea as being generally connected. Okay, I do actually see them as one conversation that Russia's having with Ukraine. And and by the way, via Ukraine is also having that conversation a little bit with us to show us what, you know, the kind of things that they might do to Ukraine. And yeah, they do like the fact that General Milley called up General Gerasimov the yep. other oh, yes. and said, hey, uh, what are we to make of all this? And he called him because there is real cause for concern. You know, this hasn't mm-hmm. happened. This hasn't yep. actually yep. this is not unprecedented deployment to Crimea. I've never seen this amount of military power deployed there. So to be fair, it, it looks strange. And there's genuine cause for concern. So that's issue one. Mm-hmm. Now, issue two is we have the activity with Belarus, the preparation for Zapad, which I think is going to be a pretty large exercise. And it's going to have um, a much larger shift of, of, I think, Russian military power to the region than we saw in 2017. Mm-hmm. I see that as a second set of activity. And as a third set, which is the sort of Russian um, permanent presence deterrence activities that involve Russian force deployments into Belarus mm-hmm. and Belarusian force deployments to their western border. I think mm-hmm. that's uh, – if we're kind of package that set separately. Um, 
what's the game there? What are they aiming at there? You know, there, there's a genuine Russian kind of like belief belief system, at least a belief structure that, you know, Christ and Belarus, that Poland and Lithuania are actively trying to get involved. Yep. They're trying to shape events in Belarus. So they're trying to arrest Belarus from being a Russian buffer against NATO right. to becoming a Polish buffer against Russia. Right, and Lukashenko's call with Putin last week were basically, according to the readouts, they they basically said there's serious threats emanating from Poland right now, right? Yeah. That was, there's, uh, there were leaks to the media that, that the Belarus might close its embassies in Lithuania and Poland, as well as Ukraine, by the way. Um, so there's a lot of data points out there, but yeah, okay, so, but uh, – Continue. So, I didn't want to interrupt. Yeah. So, so the, the you know the way Russian structure is operated is usually around a coalition of NATO member states, the lead of which are Lithuania and Poland, um, getting involved in intervention in Belarus, but backed by the United States. Because from a Russian point of view, as you know, they often see countries like Poland, Lithuania, as being um, a sort of proxy for proxy US interests. Yeah. yeah. And that and that and that the U.S. must be supporting their activities there. Uh, initiatives and and and, I, and actually looking for an opportunity to really introduce military power and potentially rest kind of Belarus outside of uh, Russian sphere of influence. So this like and, and to be clear, this like 100 percent both Patrushev mindset, but also Vladimir Vladimirovich, like Putin's. And it's the scenario for Zapad. If you've ever seen these scenarios, Brian, this is how they play out. They yep. play out like this. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be exercising the scenario come later this year. You will right. see it. So this is what's going on in their minds. So the re they were they were looking to get Belarus to agree to allow their forces to be deployed in Western Belarus mm -hmm. under some framework. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now these joint training centers, but that's their idea. Like that, and 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 you see that they are steadily now really integrating Belarus via this framework of the regional grouping of forces. Right. So essentially, a, a subset of the Russian general staff's uh, operational planning for this part of the Western military district and these key operational areas that you see going from Kaliningrad, running from Kaliningrad through Belarus. So you kind of imagining. Well, this is a long-term goal. They they wanted to effectively get Belarusian forces assigned to the joint, the Union States forces yep. under the command of the Western military district. Something Lukashenko had been resisting, obviously is no longer resisting. Right. No, that's right. That's so right. So you got the Ukrainian piece. You got the Belarusian piece, and there's a th there is a third piece you were going to get to before so, I cut you off. Yeah. So the Ukraine piece. Okay. So there's the Ukrainian piece. There's the Belarusian piece, and there's the big drill military exercise ahead of Zapad piece. Right. So there's these three things, and the the part that's frustrating is you you do in some to some extent see the Russian military using these readiness checks and these exercises, these tests for this for the forces as a irrationalization, somewhat a cover for this pretty unusual deployment that we see around here. Mm -hmm. right? okay. And then and the challenge, we have as analysts, we kind of look at it and people say, okay, well, what we're seeing is not what we saw in terms of Russian deployments in 2014, ahead of the fairly substantial overt Russian military intervention in Ukraine. But that's a completely irrelevant point okay, because it's not 2014. Russian force posture, capability, capacity is very different compared to what it was. It's better. In Korean border, totally different conversation. Stronger, right? Well, uh, Russia actually had almost no no permanently based forces on Ukraine's borders at all in 2014. Okay. Now we are talking about the creation, both the movement of several brigades, the creation of several divisions around Ukraine, the creation of an entire new combined arms army, and a large permanent military uh, uh, sort of infrastructure along with fairly modernized expanded force, which, mm. by the way, makes this conversation even more odd because with the Russian narrative that uh, the dread force of Ukraine, Ukrainian military power, okay, that seems to have shifted some units in, um, in March, that somehow justifies the Russian response to this whole thing, right, Brian? Mm. Uh, well, Russia basically rings Ukraine with large military formations that they installed specifically to deter this kind of scenario. So why do they need units from other military districts to backstop what is already many thousands of men and pretty large numbers of tanks, armored uh, combat vehicles, and artillery that they've based around Ukraine? Like, this will worries a person looking at it. Right, right. They already have this amount of military power. If, if I mean, how could they seriously even make the argument that they don't feel they can deter uh, Ukrainian military action with the forces they have permanently based and deployed? They're bringing forces from 3,000 3, km away. 
this is and they're doing it pretty overtly, which is why it looks to me in part as a very heavy course of signaling operation. Right. I don't think they need these units, to be perfectly honest at all. I don't think they need these units for any kind of fight with Ukraine. This just looks like tremendous amount of overkill for a military contingency. Yeah, these these data points added, uh, they they make me nervous. I, I don't I don't I don't see a benevolent uh, outcome here. And I want to add one more data point that I've been thinking about a bit as well, and that is the militarization of Belarus has always been looked at vis-a-vis Russia and the West, basically regarding Lithuania and Poland, right, as a threat to those countries and a threat to NATO. But guess what? Belarus also borders Ukraine. Does the militarization of Belarus change the calculus in Ukraine? Because that's that's something that's been on my mind as I've been watching this closely develop in Belarus. Um, I think it should. I think that most likely up until last year, uh, Ukrainians may have looked onto Belarus and onto Lukashenko as a semi-sympathetic party in all of this as somebody who had similar fears regarding Russian intentions mm-hmm. and the potential for a dispute with Russia to result in a Russian intervention or like overthrow mm-hmm. this regime, right? So there's there's some sympathy there, and that's all gone. So now instead, I think from the Ukrainian point of view, I suspect that I want to speak for them, right? I'm not like uh, obviously <laughs> right. that's that's not that's not that's not my principal job. Military analysis of Ukrainian military is not my 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 job. So I'm I'm speaking a little bit here uh, out of turn, but nonetheless that now Belarus is actually a fairly open and cooperative threat vector or attack vector right. for the Russian military and not a sympathetic party to this conversation at all to Ukraine. Right. Like that, that picture changes pretty dramatically in the last yeah. year, and the big loser strategically is really Ukraine from, what, yeah. from, from what's happening, the way things are playing out between Lukashenko and Putin. That's very straightforward. Yeah, no, this has got to be a very nervous time in the in the Ukrainian armed forces. I mean, and how how much this has changed, if you remember correctly, Michael, but during the Minsk talks, remember when the a hot mic picked up uh, Poroshenko and Lukashenko talking, and remember, and then uh, Poroshenko said he's playing a very dishonest game in reference to Putin, and 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 Lukashenko responded, I know, Yasnaya, Yasnaya, I know, I know, I understand, right? And this, I mean, with that, I, I mean, a, a hot mic picked that up. I don't think that was intentional or staged. Right. That was that that was a hot mic, and but I saw that as a as a really important signal. Now we're in a totally different universe. Now, now Belarus is leaking that it may close its embassy. Ukraine, which is, um, and as you said last week, this is a sign that Belarus has de facto become part of the Russian Western military district. You want to add something? Yeah, I just want to add that, you know, I suspect that in previous, at least years, post-2014, Ukrainians might have hoped that if there was this escalation and if there was this kind of military development, that Lukashenko might have even given them a heads up if he knew something, right? right? That because right. Belarusian general staff is pretty, pretty heavy coordinated with Russian general staff and so on and so forth. Right. Um, even if if you go to like Brian, if you even go to any conference or presentation by the Russian chief of general staff, followed by the Belarusian chief of general staff, it's the same PowerPoint, the same slide. Map. See, I, like right. One right. person made this presentation. The Belarusian chief of general staff presentation usually, or their minister of defense presentation, is usually a direct continuation of the Russian one. You know, like right. they, they, they sort of they look pretty, they look pretty much on the. They usually sing out the same sheet of music. So now looking at it, I, I actually suspect that Ukrainians, first of all, uh, are not only not counting on anything positive from the Belarusian side, but they're probably fairly sitting in the dark in terms of Russian right. intentions and can't expect any sympathy whatsoever from Lukashenko's regime. So they are in many ways, well, they're not alone, but they've definitely lost a useful party in this interaction. And instead, in some ways, you're depending on, now what you see is a lot of US ISR flights, that is, mm-hmm. with, with uh, Global Hawks and, and other surveillance aircraft or drones, trying to get some sight picture on what's going on, trying to maintain situational awareness. But it's pretty difficult because you have a lot of forces moving around and people think it's easy that there's like a magical eye that can simultaneously see every single unit all the time in any space and is able to discern everything. It actually is always these things are always challenging for right. um, for analysis and for intelligence. It's not that it's not that simple. 
Well, with this, this is a good way to segue because with all these disturbing data points floating out there, um, the question is out there, what can the West do here? In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and address that question. We'll also look at, is all this saber-rattling also another part of the traditional Kremlin game of testing the new United States president, which is something that, that happens quite often. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlanta Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from an undisclosed location in the great Commonwealth of Virginia, where he is still hanging out with his two dogs, Ivan the Koji and Finn the Kali, is military analyst Michael Kaufman, a senior research scientist at the Russia Studies Program at the CNA Corporation and a fellow at the Cannon Institute. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review because it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже за свою работу, а сотрудники безопасности... Гоном вас. С новым веком. So one way to look at all this is that the Kremlin is doing something it has always done. It's testing a new U.S. president early in his administration. It's a tactic as old as the 1961 Berlin crisis in the early years of John Kennedy's administration. Now, in this context, it's worth noting that Biden is the first U.S. president since Ronald Reagan to come to office without the stated desire to improve relations with Moscow. Michael, how do you see this? Is Putin testing Joe Biden? And if he is, how should President Biden respond? And I by no means would suggest that that is, that is all of what Russia is doing. But there is this tendency to test a new U.S. president. You have a new U.S. president coming into office with a more hostile relationship than we've ever had with Russia since Reagan. Right. And so it seems only stands to reason that Moscow would test him. How do you how do you see the kind of macro political geopolitical game playing out here? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that, of course, the primary interaction is between Russia and Ukraine, but this is a very worthwhile question because always both Russians often understand this as Ukraine as a bilateral issue in their foreign policy, but also as one of the core issues in their interaction with the United States and, and with European countries. So it's not separable, right? We can't say that Ukraine somehow exists as a vacuum in, right. in Russian foreign policy outside of Washington, D.C. And so there's a good balance to be made there without making it DC-centric, because we folks right. like to think that everything's about us. So anything right. that's happening is like a probing or testing. Right, of, of course. And I, and I am by no way yeah. not to suggest that, but right. I think this is one component possibly of this. Sure. So so I think that, okay, I genuinely think that Russia does face several challenges in the start of this administration. And, and the first challenge is somewhat paradoxical, which is it's not so much the administration is, isn't necessarily hostile to Russia or has no intentions of attempting a reset. It's that it doesn't care. It's that this administration has come in and has prioritized Russia a very distant uh, second from China and from a lot of other issues. And doesn't really have time for Russia. It actually doesn't have that much time for Ukraine either. I mean, to be frank, if it wasn't for this crisis situation, I don't think Biden would have called Zelensky. Not because, to be clear, not because he didn't want to or not because he wasn't going to, just because, yeah, I don't think this administration would have gotten there yet, right, in terms of all the things that they're doing and they're focusing on. They're very focused on China. A lot of folks are actually missing it. There's a there's a separate military activity and crisis around Taiwan right now with Chinese uh, carrier strike group deployed and bomber flights. So those people who focus on the space forget that the United States is actually very heavily focused with its eyes to the Pacific as well. And so I do think that what's happening is in some ways a repeat of this uh, Greek tragedian classic of administration comes in. Whatever its intentions are towards Russia, Russia's not a high priority, okay? And then Russia always gets a vote, and Russia votes to prioritize itself much higher in the administration's agenda. And this is happening much faster than I think anyone in this administration anticipated. Is they've, they put Russia as a very distant priority, and uh, within barely a few months of, into the administration, there's a real issue, right? Right. Trump has raised its watchcon level pretty high. The chairman is calling the Russian chief of general staff. Biden's calling Zelensky. And so you see, once again, people come in with like very whimsical notions about 
how Russia's a power in decline and that they can focus on China and this, that, and the other. And within a matter of weeks, you have a major crisis, you have a major military buildup, and now you have to deal with Russia, and now you have to deal with Russia as a real priority again. And I'm not, I'm not positing outcome as cause. I'm right. just showing that actually it's fascinating because this has repeated itself many times before. And that, yes, the number one thing the Russians cannot countenance above all, and, and, and being I ignored. He's being ignored. I don't say crudely Russians, I'll say, I'll, because I, I hate like essentialist arguments, so I don't want to use incorrect language. We'll say the Kremlin or whatnot. Right. But they cannot count on us being ignored. They would much rather somebody like Biden call Putin a killer, spade a spade, or at least talk about him in that way, than ignore him completely and say that they don't matter, right? Right. Not a priority. Right. Do you think they're really deprioritizing Russia that much? Because I agree with you yes. that China is a, certainly a higher priority, but they've started a new round, new rounds of sanctions and telegraphed that more are coming. The, the administration has clearly indicated that it's going to be values-based in, in, in you know, democracy and human rights and values are going to be back at the center. They've been outspoken about the whole Navalny piece in Russia. Um, and so I... I'm not sure they're de-emphasizing them that much. Um, I, I think they're placing them where they need to be in the hierarchy, but uh, I still think they see Russia as a threat. It's a declining power, but it's a declining power that can take asymmetrical actions against the United States and its allies. Um, I think they're cognizant of that. And Biden genuinely cares about places like Ukraine and Georgia. That's Remember, he was the Obama administration's point person on that because basically it's, it seemed that President Obama didn't want to deal with that. So he handed that portfolio to Biden, which Biden took enthusiastically, if I remember correctly. So. All right. Well, I, I appreciate your point of view. But as your longtime good friend, can I disagree with some you part can, of it? Of course. Can that's, I, can that's, I, that's the beauty of our friendship is we can yeah, disagree can I, uh, even in public. <laughs> yeah. Can I can share in uh, what could be a darcism of small differences? But nonetheless, let me let me push back a little bit. So first. I think that a lot of the discourse on human rights and, and return to the conversation our values is important, but it is nonetheless principally rhetorical. I think that uh, a lot of what the administration sees to be its agenda with Russia is aimed at stabilizing the relationship and discussing strategic stability that is going from an unpredictable and unstable adversarial relationship to a more stable adversarial relationship without any illusions about the regime, about the prospects for cooperation. I would, I would agree with that. I would agree um, with that. The thing is, though, and, and here's where I differ with you, this administration is, is pretty unrealistic about the kind of like genuine balance of power and influence and where Russia ranks in its priorities. The declining power mantra, unfortunately, leads to a whole host of assumptions. And one of my favorite ones on, on our last podcast, I was talking about how people focus on information warfare, political warfare, but military power sometimes gets ignored until suddenly shows up and it becomes a real conversation right. piece, right? And here we are now actually talking about a very serious situation born of very substantial conventional military power. But even beyond that, uh, my honest assessment is that I think the Biden administration does not substantially or sufficiently pay attention to Russia or prioritize it, that the discourse on Russia's declining power first leads to some assumptions that that decline is somehow steep or unmanageable. Second, makes the mistake of forgetting, is the declining power more or less dangerous? I would argue it's more dangerous. Yeah, well, mm -hmm. right. So this is a very interesting point of discussion then. So why would it, why should it be a much lower priority than the rising power? Um, I I would agree with you that they want to stabilize the strategic relationship, but I think they also want to take steps to contain whatever malign activity Russia could take, uh, either kinetic against our partners like Ukraine or, or non-kinetic against us and our allies. Um, and so I think – I'm not sure they have any illusions about this. I think they see it as a declining power that is dangerous is my feeling. But I think you're right. This is the narcissism of small <laughs> – Differences. We, we pretty much see it close to the same same way. What, what do you want to add? Yeah, I would say that it, it's true. I just I just think that really the differences on the the extent to which they assess Russian power and Russian power trajectory. And here I differ with a lot of people mm. because in relative power to the United States, Russia is not in decline, right? Mm. And that's a fair argument. That is, if you look at what's happening with the trajectory of Russian power and influence and trajectory of our power and influence over the last ten years. Relative to us, where it matters, okay, Russia's not necessarily in decline. But most importantly, even if you debate and dispute that point, right, nonetheless, 
the, the country is still the second most significant problem set for the United States outside of China. And the European theater, although it's become a secondary theater, is an important secondary theater. But what's happening in U.S. policy circles, and I don't know why, it's very hard for the national security establishment to hold as many as two thoughts in, in their mind at the same time. I know it can be difficult at times. That just because China is a much stronger priority doesn't mean that Russia is near irrelevance, right? And, right. and, and what we get is people have a hard time reconciling that Yes, China is a larger priority, and they should have all these paragraphs and pages, let's say, in Biden's interim guidance. But that doesn't mean that Russia should have been given one sentence. Okay, like that the balance between them is not right. Okay, not you know we're going to focus all this time on China, and then there's one sentence on Russia, and the Pentagon is already trying to move Russia down to like Iran and North Korea and, and these other threats. All right. Well, all right. Let's let's push this further, because if I if I do accept your premise, I, I do agree that Russia should have a higher priority than it does. Put yourself in the Pentagon. What would you tell the defense secretary? What would you tell POTUS? What should we be doing in response to this specific crisis um, and in general? All right. Well, in general, it's actually easier than a response to a specific crisis. Uh, I think a lot of things in response to, to this crisis we're already doing, right, that you have a lot of you have both military signaling, you have practical military activity to get sight picture situational awareness on what's going on with Russia. You have collaboration, coordination with European allies. Um, you have a host of statements and signs, although not that many actually from U.S. on the political side from the State Department. It's like no one's really talking about the Vienna document, potential violations there. No one's talking about other issues. So I think in, in some respects where where as always, actually, typically for the United States, we're, we're military forward leaning and some of the political statements are not necessarily, I think, where they need to be. And I'm not sure about European ones either. I read the European read the European statement. It's like, well, both sides should de-escalate. Yeah, know, that, that statement bothered me. I, I'm glad you brought that up because um, it's uh, I hate it when they try to both sides this when it's obvious which side is escalating. Right. Well, um, yeah, which which one's the serious military power with the potential to invade the other one? Like, right. <laughs> it's sort of, right. It's sort of, I mean, like, let's, let's just be a little fair about, you know, the worst case scenario uh, is not uh, Ukraine invading to take Crimea. There are no Ukrainian forces massing opposite Crimea. Right. Just have to be right. honest about this. There's no Ukrainian army building up to take Crimea. There is a sizable Russian military force deployed to Crimea for not clear purposes. So when people say like both sides should de-escalate, right. I don't know where Ukrainians necessarily are supposed to go back to. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, no, the European statement bothered me uh, a lot. And I'm, and I'm not alone. Our mutual friend, uh, the former president of Estonia, Tumas Hendrik Ilvis, had a, had a pretty snarky tweet about that, which was, I thought, highly appropriate. But uh, yeah, so, so you say the political response is lagging behind the military response. Yeah, that, that's for sure. But um, but that can come in the next week or so. It's still a developing situation. I think on the general, though, the general conversation is the, U the U.S. definitely needs to rethink, and, and along with European allies, probably at least two things. First, there needs to be strong emphasis on how much Europe and European allies, especially NATO allies, are going to further invest into defense and make our life in a lot of ways easier. And we've had this conversation yeah, yeah mobility, yeah. other things. But this current crisis, Brian, raises a really something really important. And, and, I, and I mentioned it the other day in like a silly short tweet, but I do want to bring it out here. So one of the scenarios that's always been most worrisome is a tandem crisis between Russia and us or Europeans or let's say Ukraine, whatnot. OK, but, but much worse would be obviously if it was with our actual NATO allies and a crisis over Taiwan with China. Because the bandwidth split and the situational awareness split and the pull on the Pentagon and the need to respond with forces becomes tremendous, all right? Mm -hmm. And what's currently, what you currently see in a simultaneous crisis, I want to make clear, these are coincidental events, but they are tremendous simultaneous stressors, right? The people looking at this need to be clear that this is the present and also very much the future. And so when, when, when we have that conversation on all right, what should European investments be? What should European deployments be? What should our deployments be in Europe? We have to be very serious now and discuss the prospect that there could be a simultaneous crisis, right? That tremendously pulls on US attention, both with mm. Russia and China at the same time. Like basically what's happening now, much, much worse. Uh, right, and, and, and I guess um, if we want to put our tinfoil hats on, do you think Moscow and Beijing are coordinating here? Or do you, th or do you think this is strictly coincidental? I personally, I think this is strictly coincidental, but the point I made a while ago was that this is an important conversation point in the discourse on the relevance 
of Russian-Chinese alignment, which is that they are pursuing their respective contests, okay, separate but together. That is, these are separate independent activities. Right. There are two principal adversaries, all right, who are contesting and who have the ability to basically generate this crisis scenario or even a real military contingency at the same time. And it would not necessarily be planned, but that doesn't matter for the United States. It's not that significant a distinction for the United States. Well, I guess uh, we've given our listeners a lot of reasons uh, not to sleep, I guess. Um, it was a pessimistic look at things, but I think pretty accurate one. We're bumping up against the end here. Michael, anything you want to add before we wrap it up? Sure. The one thing I want to add is, is, as always, tell people not to be overly alarmist because there are, as always, when this happens, we get uh, quickly people running out ahead of the situation and saying Russia's going to invade, it's going to do this, it's going to be some land bridge to Crimea. And I want to be made clear to folks listening is that I think that's a pretty low probability outcome in this, right? And wars have political causes. I don't see tremendous benefit that some of these sort of worst case scenarios would derive for Russia in terms of political, like, political objectives delivered. But that being said, right, this is a developing situation. It's a moving target, right? And I, I'll be honest, I was much more confident in my assessment that this was just course of signaling and course of display of force last week. And I'm a little less confident of that looking to mount the military movement this week. I'm still generally where I was. I want to be frank on that. But it is a bit alarming some of the deployments you're seeing. And you're seeing both confirming and disconfirming right. evidence, which is why it's very fair to have this conversation. Right. Be. Right. No, I thought it was an essential conversation to have. And I'm, I'm grateful you were able to come on. Um, and on that note, we shall wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore, and I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from an undisclosed location in the great Commonwealth of Virginia, where he's hanging out with his two dogs, Ivan the Kogi and Finn the Kali, has been military analyst Michael Kaufman, a senior research scientist at the Russia Studies Program at the CNA Corporation and a fellow at the Kennan Institute. Thanks, Michael, for an enlightening, albeit disturbing discussion. Thanks. It's been great uh, being here with you again. Good having you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Thiekes is in the virtual control room, and he keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Cecilia Wynn handles our all-important post-production duties, making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast read the Power Vertical blog and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week and until then I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.